This morning we're going to move on to Jesus' trial and the trials that took place after he was taken from the garden. As I was preparing this, I was thinking, you know, the big call today from a lot of people is that everyone wants justice. Everyone wants a fair trial. They want a fair hearing. We all want justice if we're done wrong. Justice for everyone. But how often does that not happen? How often does justice fail? And I was thinking of one sort of famous case recently, and that's the case of Peter Grester and the kangaroo court that he went through in Egypt. And how much of a massive public outcry was there about that, about the injustice that took place, the fact that he didn't get a fair hearing, that basically it seemed like the verdict was decided before he actually went up on trial that, you know, here's someone who's going to be the scapegoat and going to end up in prison. There was a huge cry and demand for fairness and justice. Now take that and go to Jesus' trial. Yeah, the biggest, probably the biggest mistrial there's been in history. And where's the outcry about that? Where's the jumping up and down for fairness and justice? Sure, there was probably a few people around that were doing that, but as we'll see this morning, the crowd actually bayed for his blood and cried out to crucify him. So many areas, as we'll see, of the law were run roughshod over and the verdict and outcome were decided before the trial even took place. So Jesus was taken from the garden into the high priest's palace and this is where the trials start. I want to have a look at things a little bit different this morning. That Yes, Jesus was on trial, but was Jesus the only one on trial? Was he the only one facing a trial? But, and throughout the narrative that we're going to read in John's Gospel, I think, yes, Jesus was on trial, but so was everyone else that was there. So was everyone else that was involved in the story. They were all on trial as well. So if you just want to turn with me to John's Gospel, chapter 18, and we'll just start there. And first of all, I want to have a look at the story of Peter. So John's Gospel, chapter 18, and we'll just start reading at verse 15. So Jesus is taken from the, from the garden in verse 14. And Simon Peter, in verse 15, followed Jesus and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. And they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Um, down to verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it and at once the rooster crowed. 
just a little bit of just a little bit of background story behind this, behind Peter. Um, if we were to read in um, Matthew's Gospel, uh, chapter chapter twenty six, it says there in verse thirty, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them. You will fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you into Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Remember also in the garden, it was Peter that took out his sword and cut off that high priest's servant's ear. So Peter actually had a certain amount of boldness, didn't he? You know, you're standing before all that many soldiers who are armed to the teeth and you're going to come up, come up with a sword and, take them, sword and take them all on. Peter was bold. But where is he now? Jesus has been taken and suddenly all the disciples are on their own. Without Jesus beside him, he's no longer strong. And they all forsake him and run away and flee. Peter, to his credit, is still wanting to see what's happening to his Lord, but instead of being bold, now he's hiding back in the shadows. We read that the other disciple, who was probably, probably John was in the courtyard. So he had actually, John was known to the high priest, so he's gone into the courtyard. And you'd think, you know, if one of the other disciples is in the courtyard there with all these soldiers, warming themselves by the fire, you'd think there's not, not too much danger, is there? Because he's fine. They haven't taken him and arrested him or tried to kill him. So why is Peter hiding in the shadows? Why is Peter standing outside? I think now this man who had boldness has suddenly become scared. He's suddenly become afraid of what might happen to him. Where's all his bravado? Now he's actually scared of a servant girl. Here's someone who's going to take on a bunch of soldiers with a sword and now he's actually afraid of a servant girl. When she asks him, are you not one of this man's disciples? He says, no way. I'm not one of them. I don't know what you're talking about. I've never met the man. So he thinks, you know, she doesn't question him anymore. And he goes, phew, got away with that one. Got away with it. So now I'm going to actually go into the courtyard. And he goes into the courtyard and starts warming himself because there's obviously a freezing cold night. Remember, this is the middle of the night that Jesus has been taken. So it's a cold night, he's there warming himself in the fire, surrounded by soldiers. I don't know how many there were, but there was probably a, probably a large group when you consider how many went out to try and take Jesus. He thinks, I'll just sneak into the shadows, into this group of people and just observe what's happening to Jesus. But now suddenly, he sprung again. One of the officers has actually seen who he is. Someone's figured out who he is. So what's he going to do now? Stand up and go, 
Yes, I know, I know Jesus. I know him. I was one of his followers. He goes, no, nah, I'm going to deny him again. And the third time in other Gospels, it tells us that he swears and curses that I don't know him at all. And we're not going to stand here this morning and try and make out what he said because I probably shouldn't swear and curse. But it gives you an idea of how strong... He just didn't say, look, I don't know him. But he swears and curses to the point of blasphemy and saying that I don't know him at all. I have no idea who you're talking about. Why did this man who was so bold and said, look, I'm prepared to go into death. He said, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Suddenly he's become afraid to die. Suddenly he says, I'm not going to associate myself with Jesus. Why did he do this? I think he just did it completely out of self-preservation. He suddenly became concerned with himself. I'm in trouble. I'm surrounded by all these people. He sees Jesus being beaten, being mocked, because Jesus was right there. They could actually see him. What's his response? You know what? If I lie, I'll get away with it and everything will be all right. I'll save myself. Was that the right response? I'm not going to stand here this morning and say I would have done anything different because I think it's a natural human thing to say, you know, I'm going to save myself. I'm going to preserve my own life. But really, who should he have feared? Should he have feared the soldiers? Should he have feared all the men around him? Or should he have feared, rather, Jesus? There's a verse in um, Matthew chapter... um, Matthew chapter 10, where Jesus said, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Now, how often are we like Peter? You know, we're bold when we're around other Christians, but when we're faced with a hostile situation, when we're on our own, we start to feel weak and helpless. We start to want to lurk and hide in the shadows. Just a, a really simple example I've thought of for myself. You know, you're not in a position where you're about to get killed. But if somebody comes to you on a Monday morning when you're at work and says, what do you do on the weekend? Or on a Friday, say, what are you going to do on a weekend? What's the usual response? Yeah, nothing much. Just the usual, just family. But how often do we actually talk about the fact that we go to church, that we meet with other Christians? In a really simple sense, are we not being true and owning up to the fact that we belong to Jesus and that we want to spend time with him and we want to be near him? Peter obviously did this on a bigger scale, but we do it on smaller scales, I think, all the time. You know, Jesus doesn't need followers wielding swords like Peter did. But he just needs us for us as the followers to identify with him and say, I am one of his. That's what he was looking for from Peter. In that moment, when, he, when Peter was on trial, being asked, are you one of his? He wanted Peter to stand up and say, yes, I am one of his. I am one of his followers. 
Was Jesus finished with Peter when that happened? Is Jesus finished with us when that happens? What happened to Peter? Well, the other accounts tell us that um, Jesus looked at him. So obviously he was close enough that he could see Jesus. Jesus looked at him. Was it a look of condemnation or a look of love? I think either way, you know, if you're standing there and you've just denied Jesus and Jesus looks at you, even if it's a look of love, I think you're going you're gonna to absolutely crumble. And that's what Peter did. Peter went out and wept bitterly when he remembered the Lord's words. And I see that as a sign of being tears of repentance. Peter realised, I said I'd follow Jesus even into death and now I've failed him and he weeps tears of repentance. Compare that with Judas who betrayed Jesus. What did Judas do when he realised what he'd done in giving over as the Lord? He went out and hanged himself. No repentance at all. Peter repented and look what happened to him in the end Jesus restored him gave him a prominent position in the early church foundation Peter received mercy from Jesus when there was complete lack of mercy all around Jesus you know if it was you and I and somebody had failed us and denied I think I would go well I'm finished with you you're not going to stand up when the going gets tough But Jesus brings repentance just by a look and then restores. Even in the midst of his great suffering, he looks at Peter and is concerned for him. Secondly, apart from Peter, the religious leaders were on trial. And we're not going to read because if I read all of this this morning, I won't have any time to speak on anything. But... The religious leaders were on trial. So if we just have a look at what was happening around Jerusalem at that time and in the temple, Jesus really threatened the livelihood and authority of the high priest and his family. Annas was, for want of a better word, the racketeering boss of the priesthood. So he was the guy that was behind the scenes and everything. His family controlled the priesthood. It had been him and his sons and his son-in-law and everything who had been the high priest over the years. And even though he was no longer the actual high priest, he still kept that, that title because they kept it for life. And he ran all the bazaars in the temple. So when you came up to the temple to worship, either you were that poor that you didn't have an offering to bring, so you had to buy one, Or you brought yours up and the priest examined it and said, yes, this is clean, this is without blemish, you can offer it. Well, there's a money-making scheme. You say, well, no, that's no good, you've got to buy one of ours. Or else they came up to offer money and you couldn't use normal money, you had to use temple money. So they changed it at rather exorbitant rates. So they just made money out of it, basically. Remember what Jesus did when he came into the temple? He, first of all, you know, drove out all the animals and then overturned the money changers' tables. And he said, stop making my father's house a marketplace. And he called them all out and said, you're a bunch of thieves. This is probably the catalyst for Jesus' trial and death. 
because he's threatened them. He's threatened their livelihood. So they take Jesus to Annas and he's supposed to get the indictment. He's supposed to come up with a crime and say, this is what he's done. This is the charge that we're going to bring against him. He's guilty of this, so he's got to be put to death. So how does he start this? First of all, he starts by questioning Jesus' teachings. In verse verse 19, he starts to openly question him about his disciples and about his teachings. And then we see that Jesus comes back to him and says, why are you questioning me about it? I've spoken openly. Listen to the people that have heard me. They'll tell you exactly what I've said. I've done absolutely nothing in secret. What's the response to that? Jesus speaks truth, says talk to, the, talk to people who have listened to me. I haven't hidden anything. And he gets a smack across the face for it. Where's the justice in that? You speak truth and you're going to slap somebody who speaks truth? There's something completely wrong with that, isn't there? Luke 22 tells us that he wouldn't answer, Jesus wouldn't answer whether he was the Christ. They asked him in verse um, 67, if you are the Christ, tell us. He said to them, I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the Son of God? He said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Where's the, where's the logic in this? To me, it's just absolutely poor law. They've asked him a question and said, are you the son of God then? And Jesus said to them, you say that I am. How can you charge somebody for that? It's like going before a court, somebody brings a thing against you and you say, yeah, you say that about me. Jesus hasn't exactly come out and said anything that is worthy of their judgment. If he had come out and said yes, and said yes, I am the son of God, then in their eyes they probably could have had grounds for saying that he had spoken blasphemy because he made himself the son of God. But he didn't say that. He said you say that. And so where's the, where's the grounds for actually finding him guilty? And throughout his trial there was actually several illegalities that were held without going deeply into them there was no trial that was to be held during the feast time at the Passover each member of the court was to vote individually to convict but Jesus was convicted by everybody at once if the death penalty was given a night had to pass before the sentence was carried out but it was only a few hours before Jesus was placed on the cross the Jews had no authority to execute anyone under the Roman occupation No trial was to be held at night, but this trial was held in the middle of the night before dawn. The accused was to be given counsel or representation, but Jesus had none. The accused was not not to be asked self-incriminating questions, but Jesus was asked if he was the Christ. So these leaders actually ran roughshod right over Jewish law. Talk about grounds for an appeal. Yeah, if you did that today, you'd be like, straight up, I'm off, I'm going to appeal this. But there was going to be no appeal here. 
They had already decided that Jesus was guilty and that he had to die. There's an interesting verse that stands out here in verse 14. When they took him to um, Annas and Caiaphas, and it says it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Talk about an irony. He's actually made a prophecy without even knowing the magnitude of what he said. From his own perspective, he was thinking, we're under Roman rule. Here's someone who's stirring up the people. He's going to stir them up against the Romans. He could start an uprising and he's going to get us all killed. Look what actually happened in AD 70 when the Romans came through, destroyed the temple and there was massive bloodshed. And So it actually did happen. So Caiaphas said, well, you know what? It's better for one person to die than for all of us to die. So they're trying to save their own bacon. And in doing so, he actually made a prophecy. Because it was better for one person to die than for all of us to die. It was better for Jesus to die than for all of us to die. And that was always God's plan. What motivated these leaders to do all these things so unjustly to Jesus? Again, like Peter, self-preservation. Firstly, they didn't want to be killed. And secondly, they didn't want to be taken out of their office because of an uprising. Why? Because they liked the power and the money. They had it in from the, for Jesus from the moment he questioned their authority. The religion or Judaism, had become their own thing. They'd taken control of it and it had become theirs. It was full of rules and regulations to control the people and it was a way to make themselves powerful and rich. They were only in it for what they could get out of it. And I actually thought of a verse in 1 Timothy chapter 3, 2 Timothy chapter 3. It says... But understand this, that in the last days there will, be, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And this little verse here, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. These religious leaders should have known who Jesus was. They'd studied the Lord, they'd studied the Old Testament, they should have seen all the prophecies and said, yes, this is the Messiah. But instead of that, they were worried about themselves. They just wanted everything for themselves and they'd hijacked true religion to make it their own. So they had a form of godliness but denied its power. The question I actually look at for us today as well, we can say, yes, that applies to, to all those religious leaders, but can we be guilty of the same thing today? Can we be guilty of that our following Jesus is just 
mere religion. It's not true Christianity. You know, people say you're religious. You're a religious person. The religious people are the problems in the world. Well, that's probably true. True Christianity is not religion. Do we use it to get our own way and to get what we want and just use it because it's something that makes us feel good or something that can help us get to where we want? I'm sure you can look at so many people who have become rich off religion and got themselves in trouble. They were prepared to put, to de- put God to death so that he didn't get in the way of their own desires. There was no repentance. There was no justice. There was no mercy. So they couldn't, they decided that Jesus had to die, but they can't do it. They couldn't do it because they weren't allowed to under the law. So they send them off to Pilate. Interesting thing is they couldn't stand Pilate. He, Rome was the oppressor and they hated everything about it. But they couldn't get this sorted out themselves, so they were prepared to use their enemy to get what they wanted. So they send him to Pilate. And in verse 29 it says they come before him and bring him before him and Pilate says to them, well, what accusation do you bring against him? You think, well, okay, you've got to come up with a good one here. You want to get them put to death. What do they do? If this man were not doing evil, we wouldn't have delivered him over to you. That is a seriously weak charge. If he's not doing anything wrong, we're not going to bring him to you for you to kill him. In other words, just believe us. We know what's right. We know what we're talking about. You know? The whole... The whole thing is just a sham, isn't it? So he comes before Pilate, and now it's Pilate that's on trial. Pilate's the governor of Judea, so his job is as the military leader, the administrative leader, and he's also the judge. So Pilate's actually interested in justice. He wants to see justice done as a judge. The Jewish leaders weren't. They didn't want Pilate to try him at all, They just wanted Pilate to rubber stamp the guilty verdict that they'd already signed. But Pilate, three times, he pronounces Jesus as not guilty. In verse 38, Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he said this, he went back outside and he said, I find no guilt in him. Chapter 19, verse 4, Pilate goes out again and says, See, I am bringing him to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. And then um, in chapter 19, verses 10 to 11, he says, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Pilate's the big head honcho in Jerusalem, but he's got a problem. He's got himself offside with the Jews on so many issues, he's got himself in a difficult position. So they used to come in, the Romans, and they'd bring big banners with the, with the um, picture of Caesar on it, and they'd bring statues of Caesar. Well, the Jews... And they considered Caesar a god. And the Jews saw this as an idol. So they're like, get rid of that. All the previous governors from historical records avoided this and they wouldn't put these in a prominent position so not to stir up the people, not to stir up the Jews. But Pilate's this brash, bold, proud man and he refuses to move these displays. So 
eventually he comes back to Jerusalem and the people follow him and they just harassed him apparently according to history for about five days to get rid of these idols finally in complete frustration he says right come to this amphitheater in Caesarea and we'll have a meeting about it he gets them all there surrounds the people with his soldiers and said if you don't stop this harassment on the spot I'm going to kill you all So the Jews, they called us bluff. They pulled down their collars, bared their necks and said, go ahead and massacre us. He removed these images and they won. The second thing that got them in trouble, one of the major things was the water supply was bad in Jerusalem. So Pilate went actually to build an aqueduct and he went and stole money out of the temple treasury. It's devoted to God and the people saw this as an affront to them. So they went and started a riot. And Pilate went out to the rioting Jewish crowd and they clubbed and stabbed the Jewish people to death and a massacre took place. So the Jews absolutely hated him. He's failed so many times and now he's afraid that he's going to be reported back to Caesar and he's going to get himself in trouble because the Jews don't like him. So he's caught between a rock and a hard place. He knows the Jews have delivered Jesus out of envy but he can't find anything wrong. But he can't have a report going back that he's lost control with these Jewish people. So Pilate comes up with a cunning plan to save his own skin. He goes, you know what? This will work. In verse 39, he says, you have a custom that I should release one man to you for the, at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? He goes, you know what? This will get me out of it. If I provide an amnesty, because this was a custom to release one prisoner, one prisoner of the people's choice, this was a way to maintain some sense of mercy amongst the people that they were occupying. He says, if I put up a criminal in Jesus... Surely they're going to take Jesus. After all, Jesus was a miracle worker. So he's finished with the leaders. He says, I'm not going to deal with them anymore because I can't work with them. I'm going to go to the people and tell the people, ask the people what they want. He thinks he's going to be on pretty safe ground here that the people are going to choose Jesus. And he's saying, you know what? In my eyes, Jesus is innocent. So this is my way out of it. If I can get the people to say, yes, let Jesus go, then I'm safe. He expects a response, yes, we want Jesus, the great teacher, the greatest teacher ever, the miracle worker. We want Jesus. Then you go to verse 40 and he goes, oops, hang on, that didn't quite work. They actually want the criminal. They don't want Jesus. So he goes, all right, as we read in some of the other Gospels, I'll come up with plan B. Maybe if I just punish him and let him go, that'll be enough to satisfy them. That one sort of does my head in too. You've decided that somebody's not guilty. You've decided that he's completely innocent. And yet we go to chapter 19... And Pilate takes Jesus and flogs him. Why flog an innocent man? 
Why take a crown of thorns, put it on his head and mock him if you think he's not guilty? And he comes out and he presents Jesus before them and says, see, I've punished him. Even though I think he's innocent, I've punished him. Take him. He's free. And yet the cry comes back in verse 6 of chapter 19. When they saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. You know, I think if you were standing there and you were in Pilate's position, you'd be a bit incredulous, wouldn't wouldn't you? Say, Jesus hasn't done anything wrong. Why do these people want him killed? Why do they want someone who did so much good killed? He can't understand it. But Pilate's biggest problem was that he wouldn't take a stand either. He knew Jesus was innocent. But if you read through this account, Pilate just seems to be just trying to appease whoever's talking at the time. He agrees with the Jews. He talks to Jesus. He says, yes, you're right. Okay, I'm going to let you go. He goes back. They say, crucify him. All right, I better go back and judge him again. Pilate just keeps changing, flip-flopping all over the place. And you know that statement where he says, what is truth? That's almost sarcastic. What is actually truth? Because I don't think Pilate really wanted to have a grasp of what truth was. Pilate was someone who thought he had a lot of power. Um, In verse 10 of chapter 19, Pilate said to Jesus, Will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have had no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore he who delivered me over to you has the greatest sin. All Pilate can think of is the fact that he wanted to save himself and he wanted to save face. He thought he had all authority and power, but really he had none. Finally, on the threat of being told that he wouldn't be a friend of Caesar, he caves in and gives in to their requests and says, well, take him and crucify him then. Pilate just wants an easy life. He doesn't want to have to deal with all this. He says to the Jews, it's your problem. You deal with it. It's not my problem. He wants to wash his hands of it. He wants to save his own skin. Pilate had a sense of justice and he wanted to be merciful. But at the end of the days, end of the day, he wouldn't stand up. He wouldn't take a stand in the face of all the lies and all, to the, all the deceit, he just wanted to save his own life. That's something we can easily do today, isn't it? We can listen to all the voices around us and say, oh, well, I'm going to go along with that. And then somebody else says something, and go, oh, well, I'm going to go along with that one. Without searching for the truth, without fo- trying to find out what the truth is, and then taking a stand. Pilate didn't really want to know what the truth was. All he was interested in was saving himself. Self-preservation and self-interest leads to destruction. That's what happened with the, the religious leaders. 
that's what happened with Pilate. But if we give up trying to preserve ourselves, trying to look after ourselves, this leads to life. Jesus said, whoever will lose his life for my sake will gain it. In the face of complete injustice and hatred, Jesus didn't try to preserve his own life. He could have called a multitude of angels to save himself at any moment. He could have spoken a word and destroyed them all. If anyone had the right to be angry and to try and save himself, surely it would be him. But he gives in, he submits himself, because he knows this is God's plan. He bears all the suffering, bears all the pain, bears all the shame, because he knows that it's God's plan to save us. The irony is that in this moment of complete injustice and lack of mercy, it leads to the greatest moment of justice and mercy ever known. And this morning, we stand here and we're all on trial. As I close with this thought, I'd just like to ask the worship team to come up because we'll finish with a song. But I want to stop and think this morning that we're all on trial. Had we been there, would we have done any different? Would we have stood up and been bold and said, yes, I'm one of his followers? Or would we have gone along with the crowd that said, crucify him, crucify him? Here's a crowd that was so welcoming of Jesus when he came in riding on a donkey and now they want him dead. What makes us think that we're any better than them? What makes us think that we would have stand up? We're on trial today. What will we do? Will we deny him? Will we reject him? Will we put him to death? Or will we repent like Peter did and follow him, give our lives to him and actually, as Peter said, as happened in the end, he was prepared to die for him. Pilate asked a question in one of the other Gospels, then what shall I do with Jesus who was called Christ? That question is as relevant today as it was then. What shall I do with Jesus who was called Christ? Give up trying to save yourself. Give up trying to preserve your own life and lose your life to the one who can save you. He gave up everything and suffered for this reason.